Hi, I'm Blair Bigham. And I'm Mojola Male. This is the CMAJ Podcast. So today, Blair, we are talking about the non-surgical management of major hemorrhage. I'm sure you're very excited about this topic. I am so excited. I mean, I'm a non-surgeon, right? So there's not a lot I can do to stop bleeding um, other than fix coagulopathy, which is sort of this very mystical <laughs> ideal that we talk about all the time. But in the emergency department, when you start bleeding quickly or you come in by ambulance, usually you're not that coagulopathic yet. Um, and so all I can do is pour blood into you until I can get you to a surgeon. And for me, I never have bleeding. So this is this is all new things for me a to learn. issue for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But this is a great article that really streamlines the protocol for how we do massive hemorrhage. And what I love about it is that it takes into account that we have various protocols across the country and it simplifies it by collecting you know the brightest minds who do this to come up with a very uh, a great protocol that can be used not just in tertiary centers but also in rural settings too so and also Jola, there's a tension here and maybe you can help navigate it because i'm a little biased because when people need a massive hemorrhage they need it now and it can take a long time to get blood products to the bedside. And it's not always like just the rural hospitals that have trouble. I've had very fast responses in rural hospitals and very slow responses in some pretty big urban centers that already have a massive hemorrhage protocol, believe it or not. Um, so I, I think the people who release blood always want to make sure they're releasing the right bag for the right patient. And so they're very, very deliberate and cautious. And I think that's exactly what they're trained to advocate for. At the same time, when a John Doe comes into the ER, we might not have them registered. We might know they're on their way in and not even have them in the building yet, but I can already be calling for blood. And sometimes it's tough to get that blood to the bedside. So these massive hemorrhage protocols are designed to really alleviate those delays and expedite getting blood into the patient. For sure. I think this is the tension that we're going to be able to uh, tease out with Dr. Callum. Yeah, she is the source for this type of thing. And, and she's the one who at 4am has called me in the past to say, hey, why are you giving this blood product to somebody? So she is so dedicated to making sure the right patient gets the right bag of product. I'm really excited to speak to her. As am I. Dr. Jeannie Callum is the lead author of the review in CMAJ entitled Non-Surgical Management of Major Hemorrhage. She's the Director of Transfusion Medicine at Kingston Health Sciences Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here and talking about my favorite topic, other than albumin, of course. Uh, well, you've got a surgeon and an emergency doctor here, so we're going to have a lot of fun chatting with you today. But I don't cause any bleeding. My blood loss is <laughs> no, no. zero. It, yeah, you just stopped the bleeding, right, Jola? <laughs> exactly. Never caused it. Uh, you've done a lot of work, Jeannie, not only locally, but for the province of Ontario in helping standardize a major hemorrhage protocol. What inspired you to do that work? Well, I started by when I was at Sunnybrook Health Science Center of just trying to build just the perfect massive hemorrhage protocol. And, and then I used to see patients coming in so far past any point of recovery because they had a long pre-hospital time. They'd had to go to a community hospital before they could be transferred to Sunnybrook for definitive hemorrhage control. And then I realized some of these patients were coming to us and they had a 
coagulopathy that was non-survivable. And there was mm. one sort of like aha moment when I turned to one of the air transports guys and said, oh, come on, guys, you, you need to bring us patients that are better optimized and they're warm and they're not acidotic and they're not coagulopathic and trying to say, you guys need to do a better job. And they said, no, you need to start at these St. Elsewhere Hospital and you need to start at the roadside. And it has to be the whole patient journey rather than just focusing on when they arrive at the door of our own academic tertiary trauma center, you have to start at the roadside to ensure that these patients get better care. And that prompted us to develop a provincial massive hemorrhage protocol that we call code transfusion. Now, you had mentioned that you spent time creating a perfect massive hemorrhage protocol. Tell us why we need to have a protocol. Why the perfection? What happens when people don't get your perfect protocol or when they have those delays in getting access to the right product? Yeah. So uh, Dr. Adams Cowley, he called that first hour of major hemorrhage the golden hour. And if care wasn't perfect within that first hour, patients were more, more likely to die. They weren't dying right then. They were dying three days later, two weeks later, but they had some irreparable physiologic damage. And so that's why I think it's really important that in that first hour, we provide faster, tighter, more protocolized care. Things like getting the TXA in within an hour of injury. Things like getting the blood started faster, figuring out who's coagulopathic and getting it reversed. That's right, because it's not just about blood. There's tranexamic acid, there's calcium, there's other products or drugs that go along with that to ensure a good outcome. Now, this was four years ago. Your protocol's gone provincial. Most hospitals have a code something, whether code transfusion, code omega. I've heard it called a couple of different things. So why now? Why did you write your practice paper in 2023? What were you seeing that made you think this needed to come out? Yeah, so... Perhaps about a year and a half ago, we decided we needed to collect quality metrics on every major hemorrhage across Ontario hospitals. So we created a REDCap database with collection of the quality metrics that we had pre-specified in that 2019 paper, and we started collecting them. And then we started to see where we were failing and that's one of the failure points was the knowledge mobilization and the knowledge translation and getting that message out to people so that we just have this continuous quality improvement in trying to improve our outcomes for our patients. So define major hemorrhage for me. At what point does this protocol get triggered? Yeah, so um, many, many researchers have published on the best criteria to trigger your massive hemorrhage protocol. Some people actually now call it a major hemorrhage protocol. And none of them outperform each other. None of them are probably better than the gestalt of the treating physician at the bedside. And none of them seem to outperform the shock index, which is a very simple measurement. Mm -hmm. So I think your massive hemorrhage protocol should be activated when you have the clinical scenario that can be associated with massive hemorrhage, whether that's a high-speed car accident, a penetrating injury, a postpartum hemorrhage, something where you have somebody that can have a massive hemorrhage. You've got a patient who's not responding to your frontline fluids, not responding to frontline uncross-matched blood, and then you activate it with the expectation that your patient's going to need at least six units of red cells 
and they need other components other than just red cells. The massive hemorrhage protocol isn't for the patient that needs four units unmatched for a GI bleed. It's meant for somebody who's going to get coagulopathic, thrombocytopenic with a low fibrinogen level. I love that you mentioned the shock index, which is heart rate over systolic blood pressure. Like how much easier of a metric is that? It's like in the triage note, it's on the monitor right in front of you. So easy to look at. And I was today's one year over- old when I learned this. I've never heard of this before. So <laughs> and what's a little your, bit smarter. And what do we use? Is it point, point 0.9 or 1? Like whenever you're basically, if your heart rate is higher than your systolic, you've got a problem. Yeah, for definitely at 1.4. You probably need your massive hemorrhage protocol if you're faced with a bleeding patient. And in children and in obstetrics, there's some suggestion that perhaps one. So between one and 1.4 is a bit of a gray zone. You probably don't need it below one and you should be calling for unmatched red cells. Got it. So I'm going to ask for the Coles Notes version of a massive hemorrhage protocol. Walk us through just some of the major components because it's not just packed red blood cells. Okay, so we actually call this uh, the seven T's. So we have seven things that begin with T that you have to remember. Okay. So the first is you need to trigger it appropriately. You need to give your transexamic acid within one hour of the bleed or one hour of injury in a trauma patient, which doesn't give the trauma docs a lot of time. If it takes 35 minutes for that patient to get to the emergency department, it doesn't leave you a lot of time to get that TXA in within that golden hour. We want you to start transfusing. We want transfusion to target. We don't want just a blind ratio with no thought put into your transfusions. We want testing done on the patient to make sure that we're keeping on top of their coagulopathy. We want the temperature to be monitored and aggressive preventative strategies put in place to prevent hypothermia and then when it happens to treat it and then at the end of it when you get control source control hemodynamics are improving coagulation is improving the speed of transfusion is slowed then you terminate so that the blood bank can go back to every other patient that's in the emerge or in the operating room and so that other patients can have care. I remember from my rural college exam having to memorize what comes in various buckets or what various trials said about the ratios of transfusion. Why, if somebody's bleeding out quickly, why, why can't we just transfuse whole blood? You mean an actual unit of whole blood or just a ratio of certain amount of blood? An actual unit. Instead of having to fuss about ratios and thaw frozen plasma, which in community hospitals I've never seen done in less than an hour, why can't we just have whole blood in the emergency department in a fridge or in the back of an ambulance or channeling those flight paramedics? You know, why can't we have TXA and everything out in the field? So let's start with just whole blood question. Like, why not whole blood? Sure. I got excited there. I asked you everything all at once. (laughs) (laughs) So... Whole blood seems like a great idea, but when you think about it, okay, you can only keep whole blood for 21 days. Okay, so now we have Ah. a short half-life. Whole blood has, you have to obviously match for the red cells, so we have to give group O whole blood. Group O people have anti-A and anti-B. They don't like people that aren't group O. And so if you put a lot of whole blood into somebody, you're giving lots of anti-A and anti-B that could potentially impact your recipient. So now the whole blood has to be low teeter group O whole blood. So you can't take it from a donor that has higher than average teeters. 
And it has to be from a man. Not that we have any problem against women, but women have antibodies against tissue types that can cause transfusion reactions. So now we're looking at a very niche donor. And mm. considering many of our patients are women, now you're looking at O-neg, low teeter, group O blood from a guy. So now we're talking about the rare donor and we can only keep the unit for 21 days. Okay. So not very practical. Right. So let's go to my second question there. What about getting some sort of product or drug out there into the field so that 35-minute transport time or longer, if they have to go to a community hospital first, how can we tighten this up so that they're not coagulopathic by the time they get to you? Okay, one of the best ways to prevent, treat the coagulopathy of trauma is transexamic acid. So in clinical studies where patients got transexamic acid on the way to the hospital, they were less coagulopathic on arrival. So it preserves their fibrinogen. It preserves their INR. And so that is super important. One of the most recent publications that come out just in trauma in general, when you look at their table one, 80% of patients in the United Kingdom are getting transexamic acid in the pre-hospital phase. And so that's a worldwide movement to get that done. And we can do that in Canada. There is nothing to stop us from making that happen. We know that it's safe, it's effective, and it can be done without delaying transport. The second thing you might want to give in the ambulance is blood, whether it's plasma or red cells. So we now have three randomized controlled trials, randomizing patients to getting normal saline versus getting plasma and red cells or just plasma. And in those individual patient randomized trials, there doesn't appear to be a benefit to pre-hospital blood over normal saline. Oh. There was a fourth study that was done. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a cluster trial. So they randomized the site rather than randomizing the patient. It showed a mortality benefit, but that could not be replicated when they went and did individual patient randomized trials in the U.S., the U.K., and France. So I think it's really early days on the pre-hospital transfusion. And I think we need a lot more basic science research. We need a lot more research on the product and a lot more clinical trials to flush out, well, who might benefit? There was a question that uh, that looked at patients receiving transamic acid and that there was no advantage for patients with intra-abdominal or GI hemorrhage getting transamic acid. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so the study you're referring to is the HALT-IT trial, patients having severe GI bleeding, including a good proportion of the patients had cirrhosis with a variceal bleed, which I know you know these, these are brisk bleeds. So if there's one patient population we'd like to slow down the bleeding, that would be a group of patients. And there, in that study, there was no benefit, patient important outcomes, bleeding outcomes, transfusion outcomes, nothing. And there were more thromboembolic complications. So not only was there no benefit, there was harm. I wonder whether or not there was harm in that study because when you see a GI bleed, they didn't start in the, you're not seeing them in the first hour of the GI bleed. Mm. Like they take time to become symptomatic, time to get to the hospital. And so you're probably seeing them many hours into it and you're beyond the TXA point. We know there's no benefit after three hours. So it it's, not surprising that maybe in GI bleed, we didn't see a benefit. The other thing is they gave four grams in that study. That's a lot more TXA that was given, say, in the trauma trials at two grams. And so maybe it was too much for too long a period of time. Put them on the other end of the curve, kind of. Yeah. 
So yeah. I really, if someone calls me and says, oh, this patient's like at three and a half hours post-injury, they're still bleeding, should we give TXA? And my answer is always no. You're past the three hour mark. Do you think there's any advantage? This is directly related to what I do, because sometimes when we are doing like a gallbladder or a bowel case and there's just a lot of bleeding, especially in the laparoscopic cases. And so we do sometimes give TXA, like just because we're like, well, well let's see if it works because it works in orthopedics. So we're like, well, let's see if it works in general surgery. Is that going to be causing harm or is there any studies that support the use of that and not necessarily a massive hemorrhage, but in a situation where you already are calling for blood and you're just trying to slow things down? Yeah, so uh, recently completed was the POIS-3 uh, randomized trial in surgical patients, and their dose was a gram on entry to the operating room and a gram at exit. It was such an easy thing to translate or to teach, or it just seems to be so intuitive. And so in major surgery, it reduces the major hemorrhage rate. So that's for prevention. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about is a case, perhaps you go in and you're not expecting a lot of bleeding, but that there is a lot of bleeding. You know it started in the last hour because you actually saw mm-hmm. it. So I actually think caused it. You actually, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be polite. So I, I know, think it, in, in those cases, there's no problem. I think you should be giving TXA if it already hasn't been given as part of that POIS-3 trial. Great. Thank you. Jeannie, a, a cotton pain point for emergency doctors is about reversal of anticoagulants. And there's always a question on the Royal College exam for emergency doctors about what to do if there's like antiplatelets involved. And I know there's a lot of trials around this, sort of some new novel drugs that we can't always access. But what's the bottom line for an eMERGE doc who gets this undifferentiated Jane Doe, John Doe trauma patient? We don't know anything about them. Should we be considering some sort of empiric reversal or should we just be following the massive hemorrhage and stay away from anything like octoplex or vitamin k these types of things just get thrown around sometimes or for people who are on let's say an antiplatelet maybe something other than just aspirin or an anticoagulant where does that fit into the massive hemorrhage protocol i think we should be targeting reversal of anticoagulants in a massive hemorrhage protocol patient within that first hour. I think you want to target and get it done. I think it's really important to reduce the cognitive burden on the emergency physicians and have a very clear protocol on how to do this. So I think that Mm. protocolizing is really important. We came up with a great way to do this when I got to Kingston. So I have a order set. It's called anticoagulant reversal. You click off what drug you want to reverse, and then it asks you a couple of questions that they, the blood bank needs to be able to dose it, like the weight of the patient or the INR or whatever, and you just click sign. And wow. if you have a patient on two anticoagulants, you just thrombolyze somebody, and now they're bleeding into their head, but they're also on heparin. Both of them get, can get reversed on the same order set. You don't have to remember dosages. You don't have to remember it's Pradaxa for your dabigatran bleeds. You don't need to remember the dose. You just hit the order set, click submit. So I think mm. figuring out like how to operationalize it. Um, in our trauma base, we have big signs that just have the poster with the list of the drugs. So I think that helps, but I think it's even better to have an electronic order set to make it super, super easy. In terms of prophylactically, though, giving yeah. everybody PCC that's coming mm-hmm. in, actually a study was just published where they randomized patients to getting 
plasma uh, with your regular ratio-based resuscitation versus plasma with PCC on top of that. Okay. And there was no benefit on top of the plasma. But they did not do a study of randomizing people to plasma versus PCC. Do you need plasma that has all 13 clotting factors or can you just get away with 279 and 10? So that's a big we don't know. Needs more research. And PCC being prothrombin complex concentrate, all the really good stuff within FFP. Correct. Awesome. And then just to put it to rest, if you're on an antiplatelet, do I need to care? Mm. I'm not talking about intracerebral bleed. I'm just talking about your massive trauma patient. Yeah, I think that decision has to be highly personalized. There were there was one prospective randomized trial of people with intracranial bleeding on aspirin mm-hmm. or Plavix or both, randomized to platelets or no platelets. And the patients getting the platelets had worse outcomes. Right. A similar analysis was done for GI bleeding patients presenting to the emergency department, comparing patients who their eMERGE doc had given them platelets compared to the eMERGE doc that elected not to give platelets. And you were better off without platelets, not in a randomized mm. trial, but in a cohort matching study, which is making us super nervous about antiplatelets in that setting. So I think it's not the routine. You need to personalize it until we have more trials so we actually know what we're doing. So definitely don't make it a spinal cord reflex where someone's on aspirin, they're bleeding, you give them platelets. Think. Right. It all seems very manageable when you're in a major, you know, clinical setting. But what are the challenges for smaller and rural settings? And what should the takeaway be for physicians who are working in those environments? I think there are a little lot more challenges, or you could say some opportunities to be a little bit more innovative in those regions. I think the first limitation is you've got less people in the emergency bay where you're trying to manage them. And so there's one eMERGE doc managing everything compared to a team Mm. of about 15, say, at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Um, You don't have a full laundry list of coagulation testing that you can do you probably don't have a fibrinogen level. You might not have an entire uh, recipe list of coagulation factor replacement. You might not have plasma. You definitely aren't gonna have platelets at lots of community hospitals. And so your protocol has to be somehow simplified so that you can hit those key things and get them in within that golden hour while you wait for your patient to be picked up to go to a major trauma hospital to get definitive hemorrhage control. And so the protocol, you still have to have a protocol. It's just got to be different and it's got to be simpler. Some of the things that we've done is things like suggest just give two grams all at one time. Don't try and give a gram and then a slow one gram infusion. Just give your two grams, get it done and go on to the next task that you have to do for massive hemorrhage patients. I love this question, Jola, because a massive hemorrhage protocol is fairly blood work heavy because we're trying to do this sort of with metrics and not just throwing buckets into people. And at some hospitals, like when I work in a cardiac transplant hospital, I have bedside coagulopathy testing. I get my INR back in minutes. Everything's very, very fast. When I work in a community hospital, I... I might not even have more than two bags of red cells in the building and my FFP is coming in a police car from Ottawa, for example. Where 
does the future lead us in terms of getting faster and better blood work to make these decisions and be maybe more patient specific with our MTPs? And I guess I'm getting at things like um, thromboelastography and other bedside tests that are, I'm sure, expensive, but give us that sort of real-time information to titrate our transfusion products to that patient right in front of us. Yeah. And I think that those more aggressive testing is really important to prevent over-transfusion. Like we see people finishing a massive hemorrhage protocol with hemoglobins of 180, 200, and they've been clearly <laughs> so, over-transfused. I'm probably responsible for one or two of those. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's turning out to be about more than 50% of the massive hemorrhage protocols in the province finish 24 hours post-resuscitation with a hemoglobin above 120. Gotcha. Where you put your threshold for over-transfusion, I'm not sure where you put that, but a good proportion are getting more products than they actually need. Mm. And on the other side, we see people who have a fibrinogen of zero and it's two hours before it is addressed. And that is, that's a problem because that patient gotcha. is never going to stop bleeding unless we get on top of the coagulopathy. So I think fiscal elastic testing, whether it's Rotem or TEG, it's coming. Mm -hmm. So everybody okay. needs to start educating themselves. These multiple companies make these different machines. They're getting smaller. They're getting easier to use. You basically mm -hmm. just put like it looks like a little cartridge in, a little drop of blood in the top, and it just starts running. You don't have to pipettes. Right. Even a surgeon could do this like at the bedside. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so it sounds like the future, lots of excitement as we try to make sure that no one's being transfused too late, but that no one's being over transfused, walking that line and hitting the sweet spot. Yeah. And people have done retrospective analyses to look at what is the sweet spot in trauma. And it looks like it's tight. It looks like it's that mm. 80 to 120. If you go under 80, you go above 120, you start to see mortality rates going up. And so I think it's really important that we're being quite tight British guidelines are recommending every 30 to 60 minutes you should be doing blood work on your massive hemorrhage protocol activation. I think if you can get it in at least hourly, you're doing a great job. If you can get it to every half hour, fantastic, but minimum every 60 minutes. Lots to aspire to. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us today. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, that was a great conversation. I had so much fun. Thank you. Dr. Jeannie Callum is the Director of Transfusion Medicine at Kingston Health Sciences Centre. So Blair, what were your takeaways from this really like exciting conversation with Dr. Callum? Well, I'm excited to know that these protocols continue to sort of be refined and um, I guess disseminated and really trying to get hospitals to not just have them on paper, but have them ready to implement in practice. Because again, it's, it's like responding to a code blue, like there can't be delays, like everything has to go smoothly. Mm -hmm. It also makes it really easy for clinicians who don't do a massive transfusion monthly or weekly, um, like, a, like a lot of people in maybe a busy trauma center or a busy GI center. Um, when it's a rare occasion, it's so helpful to have it protocolized. And Jeannie really sort of gave us a sense of, of how easy those protocols can be when they're implemented to perfection. Well, I think she makes it look easy, but I'm sure that this is <laughs> very uh, challenging to coordinate. And uh, I look forward to how 
you know, when they, because I'm sure they're going to be collecting the data of, you know, how, how does this work in different settings? Because part of our geography in Canada is that it's very vast and we have different accesses to services. So I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, in the future, if there's ways to modify this for settings that are low resource. And, you know, it doesn't always happen where you think it's going to happen, like in the emergency department or in the operating room. Um, and so this type of thing, um, you know, it can it can happen anywhere where people have these massive bleeds. Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to recognize, for example, if it's luminal bleeding. Um, but you got to be ready to to pull the trigger. And the massive transfusion protocol just allows the whole hospital to know that there's a situation going on and it's all hands on deck. Wonderful. That's it for this week's episode. Just a big shout out to all of our listeners. We just hit a quarter million downloads. Thank you so much for listening. And please continue to like and share our podcast so that we can get the message out there and spread all this amazing expertise that we get from our guests. And a huge shout out to our producer, Neil Morrison from Podcraft Productions, who keeps us on track and keeps our audio sounding pure. I'm Blair Bigham. And I'm Wajala Male. On my way to become a podcast superstar. Until next time, be well.